Welcome to the Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of The Just Pod. Today, we're joined by the new plea bargaining task force for the criminal justice section. And here with me is our current chair, Lucien Gervan, who is also serving as co-chair of this task force. Lucien Gervan is associate professor of law and director of criminal justice studies at Belmont University College of Law. And also joining us is the reporter for the task force, Taya Johnson, associate professor of law at the University of Maine School of Law. Thank you both for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Uh, We're excited. Thanks so much. Today, we're going to talk about the creation of this new task force. But first, let's talk about why we need it. We're going to be talking about the current state of plea bargaining. And I'll just let Lucien kick us off with outlining of the current state of plea bargaining and how we got where we are. So I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear that Plea bargaining does not have a long history in the common law. In fact, this is a relatively recent American invention. So if you were to go back and look at common law cases from England from the last couple of hundred years, you would actually see a very stark rejection of what we would call modern plea bargaining. It just wasn't permitted. And the thought was that if you threatened an individual with additional punishment if they didn't plead guilty or you offered them leniency in return for an in-court confession of that nature, that that would undermine the truth-seeking function of the criminal justice system and make it less reliable. And that's why in the English common law, they just didn't permit it. And that's why, in fact, in most jurisdictions around the world today, it's still not permitted. But in the U.S., we began to see the use of what we would describe as plea bargaining today. We began to see it rise around the time of the U.S. Civil War. And at that time, you know, it was being used a little bit at the trial court level, but whenever we saw it rise up on appeal for one reason or another to the appellate courts, it was struck down. And again, that was simply because, you know, the common law tradition was it was not permitted and and they were retaining that tradition. Then as we move into the early 20th century, you see something really interesting happen. You see plea bargaining begin to become more dominant for several reasons. One is it really has a lot of roots in corruption. So at the turn of the century, in places like Chicago, for example, plea bargaining was really not a legitimate part of the criminal justice system. Instead, what it was is people would simply pay money, and the money would be divided up between the defense counsel and the prosecutor and the judge. And depending on how much money you gave, your sentence would be reduced. That's what plea bargaining looked like in the very early days. And of course, that was you know not part of our system of justice, really. That was an, an offshoot of it. It was a crime. But what happens is that as we move into the prohibition era and a time when there was a lot of overcriminalization, which is to say the, the dockets were swelling, the courts were becoming overwhelmed, they couldn't get enough cases through the system because we had begun to prosecute many more people than we had traditionally, prosecutors and defenders and judges realized that what had originally been a corrupt system of plea bargaining could actually be made legitimate. And this idea of, of giving somebody a lighter sentence in return for a confession of guilt might actually become part of our criminal justice system, and it might help speed through cases and, and clear up these overwhelmed dockets. And so that's what they started to do 
do. And so it's fairly well documented that we have a pretty significant rise in plea bargaining in that early 1900s era as they begin to use it during prohibition to simply get cases through the courts. And from there, it just sort of takes off. So once it had that air of legitimacy, it began to be used more and more. And it didn't take very long before 90% of cases in the U.S. were being resolved through a plea bargain of some kind. Today, we see in the federal system, for example, about 97 to 98% of cases being resolved through a plea of guilty. Of that, about 75% is estimated involve an offer of leniency or a threat of punishment of some kind. So we've really come a very, very long way and not a lot of time. We've gone from an old English tradition of no plea bargaining at all to what we have today in the U.S., which is really a system that is dominated by plea bargaining, this fairly modern American invention. So let's talk about plea bargaining and the Supreme Court. Taya, can you walk us through the evolution of plea bargaining and the intersection with the Supreme Court over the last decade? Sure. So what's so interesting, of course, is here we have a system that's 97% plea bargaining. So plea bargaining is the system. And there's actually very little Supreme Court precedent. The Supreme Court has more recently tackled plea bargaining, but for a long time, really, if a plea bargain was knowing and voluntary, and that's the Brady case, like many constitutional rights, that's what we were looking at, right? Did you knowingly and voluntarily plead? Um, And a lot of that was dependent on whether you had a competent attorney. And in recent years, we've done a little bit more, the Supreme Court has done a little bit more to say, well, what is a competent attorney at plea bargaining? So one area, we have the Padilla case where the Supreme Court says, okay, a competent attorney has to advise a client that there may be immigration consequences as a result of a conviction. And that has a huge impact on plea bargaining because, of course, it is the system. And so now you have defense attorneys have to be on notice about potential immigration consequences where they're clear. And the court in Lafler and Fry also said, well, you also have to advise the client about plea bargains that are on the table, right? And there is some turn by the Supreme Court to say, we do want competency standards for defense attorneys at plea bargaining. But those standards really focus on advice, the sort of advice the defendant gets from the attorney, much less so the actual lawyering that goes on, right? The actual seeking out of a plea bargain or negotiating well for a plea bargain bargain. I think really the most interesting case and the one that did the most to cement plea bargaining's place in the modern system is Bordenkircher versus Hayes. And in that case, the Supreme Court says essentially threats to increase charges or sentences if a defendant rejects the plea bargain that's on the table, those threats are part of the process. And as long as the defendant understands that he is making that choice, the court essentially in that case allowed a defendant who was charged, I think it was with uttering a forged instrument in the amount of 80 something dollars, five year plea bargain on the table, he rejects it. And the prosecutor in that case pursues a three strikes, uh, you know, a, a three strikes law in that state and defendant ends up with a mandatory life sentence. And court says, 
hey, that's part of the process, right? And so in many ways, that was the place where the Supreme Court indicates they are on board with plea bargaining and, in fact, are going to regulate it very, very loosely. So in recent years, there's growing concern over defendants accepting plea bargains when they might not even have committed the crime. So there's a question of innocence and and guilt in the role of plea bargaining. Can you tell us more about how that problem has evolved and what is being done to address it? Yeah, so there's been a lot of concern raised about this issue. I describe it in some of my work as the innocent defendant's dilemma. And it's the idea that the incentives to plead guilty can be so large in many cases that the rational decision is to plead guilty even if you haven't done something. The risk of going to trial and the penalty that you receive if you lose at trial is just so great that people aren't willing to take that risk. You know, if we go back to that Brady decision that Taya was mentioning earlier, that's the 1970 decision where the Supreme Court finally approves of plea bargaining, which in itself is a really fascinating case because, again, up until that point, All of the precedent, both from the English common law and from U.S. appellate courts, indicated that plea bargaining was not permitted. But I think the Supreme Court in 1970 realized it had little choice. By that point, we were already well over 90 percent of cases resulting in pleas of guilty. The system was still overwhelmed. And I think there was a realization that there's just really no way forward for us without using plea bargaining to at least create a more efficient system. But in that decision, they said something really interesting at the end. They said that it was not their belief that innocent individuals would plead guilty in significant numbers in response to the incentives that were being offered to them. But they did go on to say that if they were wrong about that, they would have to revisit the case, revisit their decision to allow plea bargaining at all. And of course, they didn't base their thought that innocent people didn't plead guilty on anything other than sort of a hunch. They had no scientific evidence to back that up. Well, in recent years, we've delved into this issue from a scientific perspective, and we've engaged in a lot of law and psychology work. In an article that I did back in 2013, we engaged in a psychological deception study to sort of test this notion and see if the Supreme Court was right. And we found that they were not. In our study, 56% of the innocent participants falsely pled guilty to something they had not done in return for the benefits of a plea bargain. And that sort of brings the whole system into question in many ways. And we're beginning to see this issue of innocence make its way to the Supreme Court, not directly yet, but you can begin to see, I think, where the court is going to have to go. They're going to have to address this issue that they raised originally in 1970 and now is coming back into prevalence and into consideration. We saw a little bit of it in a case from last year, the 2018 United States v. Class case. This is a case where an individual was charged with a weapons offense here in D.C., and he ended up pleading guilty, but then went on to appeal his guilty plea. And the case really revolved around the question of whether he was allowed to appeal or whether he had waived his appellate right, even though it wasn't explicitly included in his plea agreement. But the case began to sort of raise these issues because he was clearly an individual who didn't believe he had actually committed the offense and yet pled guilty because there was a significant offer on the table. And it simply didn't make any sense for him not to take that. You know, it didn't make sense for him to take the risk of going to trial. And And so the Innocence uh, Project actually in their brief 
in the case, raised these issues of innocence and talked about that research that I was mentioning a moment ago about innocence uh, falsely pleading guilty. And again, the court you know, didn't directly address the question because it wasn't the right case. But I think we're going to see this happen soon. The court is going to have to address not only the issue of what does it mean that an innocent individual might falsely plead guilty because the incentives that are permitted under the current system are so great, but that will also lead them to have to ask the question of what does it mean that at the end of the day, we really have today a system of efficiencies, more than I think the system that our founders originally envisioned. And those types of questions were what led us to create this task force. We think the time is now to really begin to examine plea bargaining in a way that it wasn't during its rise. As I mentioned a minute ago, you know, plea bargaining rose in the shadows, did not rise in a way that cast a lot of light on the process. There wasn't a lot of input from Congress, from policymakers. There wasn't a lot of input from the courts. Really, this sort of happened organically out of necessity in the trenches of the system. And the question for us now is to go back and say, is the system working properly? What are the challenges? What does the system need to look like going forward? And those are the kinds of questions that we as a task force are going to address as we begin to look at it in a way that it was not looked at as it began to grow and become dominant. So I'd like to take a step back just for a moment for our listeners and talk a little bit more about the factors that might lead someone to plead guilty when they're innocent. So you talked about the incentives in a deal. On a recent podcast, we had the CEO of the Youth First Initiative. We were talking about the Central Park Five, you know, that's gained prominence right now with the release of the Netflix miniseries, When They See Us. And it's bringing to light that these teenagers ended up confessing to a crime they didn't commit. And that raises other issues of why the general assumption, I think, is in line with what the Supreme Court assumed. And that was that not many innocent people are going to say they're guilty if they're not. So can we talk about some of those other factors that might lead someone to plead guilty? Sure. I think these are related issues, but somewhat different issues. So one is innocent people we know confess to crimes, right? They can be interrogated in ways, questioned in ways that leads innocent people to actually say, I committed this crime and let me describe it to you and tell you how I did it. And we know that people can do that who did not actually commit the crime, which sort of goes against our intuition, right? That people would never commit or confess to a crime they didn't commit. What's interesting about plea bargaining is it's done, you know, to pick up on this theme of it being done in the shadows. In many ways, plea bargains don't require people to confess their crime on the record. So in the federal system, we do have Rule 11, which requires the factual allegations to be presented on the record. But one of the reasons plea bargaining can thrive is because we simply accept the negotiations of the parties. Um, and, And if we accept the negotiations of the parties, we generally don't need the defendant to elaborate on the crime on the record. So defendants are very willing if they're getting a good deal and the risk at trial is going to be really profound to say, okay, I'm guilty, right? And so one question is, you know, should we have people giving sort of more formalized confessions or statements of guilt on the record? And would that in some way deal with part of the innocence problem, right, with plea bargaining, because I think more people would potentially bulk at uh, at giving that 
you know, that sort of more formalized confession of guilt. But we know also a lot of people would do it, even if they were totally innocent. So there's so many things going on um, that allows people to plead guilty who are innocent or who are guilty of some other crime, but willing to plead to the crime the prosecutor has put on the table. So obviously the sentence is one of them, the, the potential of higher charges or more charges, right, that you either plead guilty now or we'll go back and we'll reindict you on additional charges. And then that, of course, has an impact on the sentence. There was also uh, this collateral consequences report yesterday, and collateral consequences can have a big impact on people pleading guilty. You know, if you, let's say you're facing sex offender registration, right, and there's some plea on the table that will get you out of sex offender registration, you might be very inclined to accept that deal rather than go fight the case because you so badly, as the defendant, want to avoid sex offender registration. And of course, we know also immigration consequences can really impact a person's desire to end a case in a positive way. And I'm putting positive in air quotes. We can't see it on a podcast, right? In a positive way that won't result in immigration consequences. So there are all sorts of reasons somebody might plead guilty to a crime they are both innocent of or that they just didn't commit. And those are slightly different things. And one of the things I think that's problematic is plea bargaining remains in the shadows. It remains something that in general we don't see. So it's hard for us to know what's going on and what the negotiations are and why people are pleading guilty. And I think that's another reason why this task force is so important is to start this conversation. Let's take it out of the shadows. So we really start seeing plea bargaining because it is the system. So as as Taya mentioned, I mean, there's so many forces at work in the plea bargaining system that can lead to a false confession. I remember that after the 2013 study I mentioned earlier was released showing that in our study, 56% of the innocent participants falsely pled guilty. There wasn't a lot of research in the law and psychology area on this. And I was talking to a prominent researcher who has done a lot of groundbreaking work in that field related to false confessions in the police interrogation setting. And I remember him saying to me, you know, I didn't realize that these were so intertwined. I always thought of plea bargaining and false confessions in the police setting as being completely different, but I now realize that they're actually very closely linked and the same kind of psychological forces that lead to false confessions in a police station can also lead to false confessions in a courtroom. And it's really, I, I think, jump-started this whole new area of research in law and psychology now. And we're seeing there's actually a book recently published by Oxford University focusing exclusively on this area, just to kind of give you a sense of how much more research is now happening. I'll also note that, you know, it's it's really interesting to think about how we can fix these issues. And this is obviously something the task force is going to be thinking about. But I'll just sort of to give an example of how complex it can be. Japan is a country that up until about two years ago, plea bargaining was against the law. And beginning in the summer of 2018, plea bargaining began to be permitted. And what's interesting is when they created their plea bargaining law, they made it very limited in application in an effort to try to reduce some of the risk of what we're talking about. And one of the things they did is they actually require that an individual who's engaged in plea bargaining present evidence that can be used against a third party. So it's not just them confessing for themselves, but they actually have to 
offer evidence against another person as well. And their belief was that this would reduce the likelihood that there would be these false confessions. And so we've been engaged in research. Uh, Professor Vanessa Edkins, who was my co-author on the 2013 piece, and I uh, and, uh, and others have been engaged in research on this now for the last few years in Japan. And interestingly, what we found is we have very similar false confession rates to the research that we did here in the U.S. So we're seeing a significant number of individuals falsely pleading guilty in our study in Japan. And we were also requiring that they go on and we asked them to provide testimony at a trial against one of the alleged co-defenders. And we're finding that about 50% of the individuals who falsely confess are also willing to go on and testify falsely against a third party. So it seems like what Japan tried to do is not going to be successful. And it just gives you a sense for how complicated this is and how the psychological forces at play here for somebody to sort of get the best possible result for themselves really clouds that truth-seeking mission of the justice system and, and is really kind of the type of thing we're trying to tackle here. So let's talk more specifically about the task force and what you're setting out to do. Tell us. So I'm excited that we are launching at the criminal justice section the plea bargaining task force, having the section focus more on plea bargaining and the role that it currently has in our criminal justice system, the advantages that it offers us, as well as the challenges and sort of think about best paths forward is something that I've wanted the section to do for quite some time. And so as chair, I have the ability to create task forces. And so one of the first task forces that I wanted to create was one to look at this issue. So we've spent a lot of time carefully planning the task force, thinking about the mission of the task force and putting together an incredible group that represents a very diverse collection of individuals who see the criminal justice system in different ways. Prosecutors, defenders, policymakers, academics, others. We're going to put this great group together and think about the issues that we've been talking about today. And the goal really is to identify uh, both the ways the system is working well, what benefits does plea bargaining offer us, and then also, of course, what challenges exist. You know, what do we not like about what we're seeing in today's criminal justice system because of the influence of plea bargaining? For example, of course, this innocence issue being one of the ones we're going to be taking a very close look at. And then we're going to have a report created, and that's something that uh, Taya is going to be working on. And it's going to not only talk about our general discussion, but it's going to focus on some specific areas as well and include recommendations. And the hope is that those recommendations, some of them will be broad and policy oriented. And some of them, I think, are going to be very specific. And they're going to talk about the ways that we engage in criminal practice today and the influence that plea bargaining has and how we might do these things differently and better. And I hope that we can take this report that comes from this task force and its work over the next year and we can use it to educate people. We can use it to potentially create some resolutions that will become ABA policy that we can then lobby on uh, to Capitol Hill and really see some changes in the law. And because we've brought together this really dynamic and diverse group, I'm hoping that we're going to have some great partnerships with lots of organizations who are interested in this work and take the report and work of this group and really roll it out, not only nationally, but to the states so that we can see change. Because this is an issue, you know, we've talked a little bit about how dominant plea bargaining is at the federal level. Well, it's just as dominant at the state level. And in fact, when you think about things like the innocence issue and related concerns, 
They're likely even more prevalent at the state level where you have a lot of misdemeanor cases, for example, where there just isn't the resources and the time expended on them that there are on some of these bigger federal cases. And so the innocence issue can be even greater there because there's just not the development and there's not the safeguards in place. So this, I think, is really a national effort. And I'm really looking forward to the results and the work that comes from it. That's great. And as I mentioned earlier, Lucien is one of the co-chairs of this task force, and he is joined by Professor Russ Covey of Georgia State University College of Law. And Taya Johnson will be serving as the reporter for this task force. So Taya, why don't you finish up our discussion by telling us a little bit more about what your role will entail? Sure. So I'm here to listen and to record kind of all the wisdom and thoughts and reflections of the group, and then to produce a report that will have short-term impact, um, but also long-term impact, the ability to keep the conversation going. Because as this brief conversation on the podcast has made clear, there's so much about plea bargaining that we need to both understand and then fix. And so that is the hope for this report. Well, great. We will look forward to hearing more about your findings as you continue in your investigation. And again, for our listeners, the task force has just been created, and today is their first meeting here in D.C., so we will look forward to updates from them. So thank you again to both of you for joining me today, and thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Just Pod.